0: Hello there HCI Learners, thanks for joining us for this episode of Nine to Thrive HR. In this podcast, we team up with experts and practitioners in the field of HR and bring their knowledge straight to you as it pertains to the most pressing issues facing talent management today, those topics we can't get enough of. I'm Holly Pinnebaker, your host for today. If you're listening on iTunes, please give us a rating. Your rating helps other professionals and talent-minded people discover the program. And for this show, I'm joined by Dr. Ben Weber. Ben is CEO and co-founder of Humanize, a people analytics company that uses digital and face-to-face technology to help companies answer specific business questions. He is a visiting scientist at the MIT Media Lab, previously worked as a senior researcher at Harvard Business School, and received his PhD from MIT for his work with Alex Sandys Pentland's Human Dynamics Group. Ben's work has been featured in major media outlets such as Wired, The Economist, and NPR. He has consulted for industry leaders such as LG, McKenzie and Company, and Gartner on technology trends, social networks, and organizational design. His book, People Analytics, was published by the Financial Times Press in 2013. Welcome, Ben. Great to be here. So workforce planning and people analytics will reign as one of the hottest topics in HR for 2018. We're glad to bring Ben's passion for people analytics to our audience. We'll explore this topic even further next year when HCI's Workforce Planning and People Analytics Conference goes down in Miami, Florida from February 27th through March 1st. We have HR leaders from all over the United States gathering to speak on the value of making strategic planning and actionable analytics foundational to making the best decisions for your business. We'll get the excitement going today with a question and answer session with Ben. So how is sensing technology transforming the new world of work?
1: I think for you know a long time, we've always wanted data about what actually goes on within companies. At a basic level, I can go to pretty much any organization in the world and ask really basic questions about what goes on internally that people can't answer. How much does management talk to the engineering team? Nobody knows. How much even should a salesperson talk to the customer? And you think about how simple those questions are, how critical they are. And the reason that we can't answer them is we don't have data. Typically, we might use things like surveys or consultants. It's not to say that it is useless, but we know how it's fundamentally limited. If it's cold, uh, like it is here in Boston, you'll answer differently than if it's warm and sunny. Um, At the same time, humans just aren't recording devices. So even if I have consultants following people around, if I have thousands or tens of thousands of employees distributed all over the world, you can't actually have enough people that are recording and writing down what's going on. The thing is, we we have a lot of data about what people do at work. We have email, chat, meeting data, um, but now the sensor data, about what goes on in the physical world. And all of us carry around a lot of sensors with us already. I mean, typically we'll have um, ID badges, or if you have the little badges that you used to tap into a door, that's a sensor. That's an RFID sensor, just a little radio. And If you put little RFID readers in the ceiling, you could figure out where everybody is besides uh, being a little creepy, that doesn't actually tell you how people are interacting, how they're collaborating with each other. Right? And so today you've got some of these next-generation smart badges that are coming out on new companies like HID, Blue Vision, Panasonic, that are putting additional sensors into those IDs to do not just location within the workplace, but even things like movement, uh, temperature, other things like that. Um, back at MIT and then also at my company, we've also added other sensors like microphones, uh, infrared, which enable you to look at literally at a millisecond level. Uh, who's talking to who? How people talk to each other? Again, not what people say, but really able to say things like how dominant is someone in a conversation? How much do different teams talk to each other? Um, I think with all this data, and of course, we'll probably talk about it later, You know, it's important to maintain individual privacy, so deploying on an opt-in basis, not giving individual data to companies, really feeding this back to individuals. But because now you have literally millisecond level data coming in on what's going on at the organization all the time and in all of the world that enables you to deploy similar analytics tools that we typically see online, you know, whether it's Google, Facebook, Amazon, you name it, Um, we're really able to first of all, use this data to understand the state of the world today, but then take that a step further and start to see, well, when we actually implement a management change, what impact does it have? And then, of course, we can proactively use this data to plan interventions, to plan changes, to roll out new training programs, or rapidly test different programs at the same time. And it's, we're just at the beginning of this. So there are very few companies and even researchers that are that far along on it. Um, but really what's What's fascinating is that there's this real opportunity to drive not just you know, technology change by adopting this kind of technology, but drive real cultural change in terms of how organizations make people decisions uh, with this fundamentally new data.
0: It certainly does seem like data can do all things, big and small, and that the sky's definitely the limit, so it might be a little daunting for some at first. So can you share an example of how a very small workforce change has had a major impact on performance?
1: There's uh, got lots of examples, I think. Uh, one of my favorite ones, though, involves lunch, because we all like to eat. Lunch is time to eat. It's good. Lunch is important. But um, it's very interesting. So some data from uh, one of our customers, which is a uh, major online travel company. And they have at their headquarters thousands of employees. Uh, the vast majority of them are software developers, and Uh, For those of you, I'm previously a programmer. Most people think uh, the stereotypical programmer is someone who sits in the corner drinking Mountain Dew and no one talks to them. And I do like Mountain Dew, so it's a stereotype for a reason. But the thing is, is that uh, software development is a very collaborative task. You know, your code depends on the code of hundreds or thousands of other people. And if you don't communicate with them, that's where the bugs pop up. You know, if my code has a dependency with your code and we don't communicate, it takes us 32% longer to complete that code. And there's decades of research on that that I've done, but also out of Carnegie Mellon, MIT, IBM. Um, and what was interesting in this organization is we had all of that software dependency data, but we also had uh, from, these, from our, our badges, we knew who was talking to, who face-to-face. We also knew who was emailing each other, chatting, that sort of thing. But really this complete picture of what's going on within the organization. And again, what you're really looking for is when do people tend to talk to each other um, that they have these dependencies with, and were there, for people who were the top performers who completed their code most quickly, who had the fewest bugs, what did they tend to do differently than everybody else? And you saw something really fascinating, which is that it looked like these really effective people and teams, it looked like they were eating lunch with a lot of people um, every single day. And what was really interesting was that it seems like every day they were eating lunch with 11 other people, sometimes 10, very rarely a nine, but it was almost always 11 other people exactly. And so that was kind of odd. And you look at the other groups of people, the lowest performers, and they were all eating lunch every day with about three other people. There's almost always three, and sometimes it was two, and very rarely it was one. So it was always three. So these two groups, the two bimodal groups, what was going on here? Why was it so different? And what you'd see is people would eat lunch in these bigger groups. And what was weird was that you didn't eat lunch with the same people every day. You'd eat lunch with different people. And then, of course, when you eat lunch with somebody and you talk to them during lunch, we saw they were much more likely to talk later in the week. And these people came from many different uh, parts of the company, many different groups. And so that meant that if you, again, had a dependency with another team that you don't normally talk to, you now know someone on that team, you're much more likely to reach out to them, and that leads to a much higher performance. So that part of it made sense, but there was this basic question of why were there these 2 size lunch groups? We went down to the cafeteria of the company, which is where the vast majority of people ate lunch, and it became very clear what the answer was. Next to one set of doors, all the tables in the cafeteria had 12 seats. Next to the other set of doors, all the tables had four seats. And this was the thing. What was happening was people were coming down, and they were sitting at uh, whatever – table was closest to the door they normally came in. And that had a huge impact on performance. You're talking about you know, 10 plus percent uh, you know, differences in terms of milestone attainment performance. It's a big change. And it's funny because y- you think about how much time organizations will agonize over the org chart or competition. And of course, those things are important. But <laughs> how much time do we spend thinking about how big the lunch tables are? And we got to the point where the quickest solution is just to duct the, uh, the lunch tables together. But I think it's fascinating because there's so many things like that about work that are so unoptimized and they seem so small and trivial, but they're actually really important. Right? The interactions that we have with the people we work with are just so critical. And it's not that we had to collect or look at the data at a millisecond level to see that big trend. It was something where, you know, just knowing – when people are communicating with each other really at an aggregate level across months. Um, and combining that with some basic knowledge of the way the uh, the office is laid out um, actually had a huge impact and are able to drive pretty substantial change. And you can convince the company that you should just invest in bigger lunch tables because you have pretty hard data to, to back that up.
0: Yeah, I never would have thought about the arrangement of lunch tables Contributing to performance, but once you get the vision in the head of how they're laid out in the cafeteria, it certainly makes all the sense in the world. That's right. So how prevalent do you think sensing technology will be in organizations in five years and then 10 plus years?
1: In five years, I think the vast majority of ID badges that people have will have um, many more sensors than they do today. Again, today, it's the vast majority of them are proximity sensors alone. Uh, Within five years, um, certainly simple microphones and accelerometers are going to be the norm. Uh, Again, you can get them to a size and a cost where even late next year, uh, I wager that a couple million people in the U.S. alone are going to have um, IDs with that enabled. Um, So within five years, that will be the vast majority of those. Um, Add on top of that, not just in our IDs, but also being able to fuse in data from cell phones, which all of us have and, of course, are very sophisticated sensing devices. And even beyond that, you think of sensors we already have today, whether in lighting systems, to figure out if people are uh, in a room. Those little tablets you might have seen outside of meeting rooms that allow you to book rooms or not, those are also, again, sensing devices. And I think we're not far, again, from this pretty near future where we're able to understand at a pretty deep level, we'll already have access to all the data we need to really understand what's going on in the physical world. Getting farther out, getting 10 plus years out, of course, things like um, having sensors integrated into our clothing so you don't even need um, a, a separate sensor. I mean, you might have even seen uh, Levi's just produced a, a jacket um, with Google where they've um, there's actually embedded um, sensors and conductive threads in the garment, and that enables you to talk to your phone and just brush your jacket to control some things. It's a little toy application, right? It's not that useful. Um, however... What is very fascinating is that when you're able to integrate those kinds of sensors into uh, clothing manufacturing, and you can literally wash this just like a regular piece of clothing, that means you'll have this incredibly deep data about every person um, all the time without needing additional devices. Um, On top of that, again, 10 plus years out, the actuation in the physical space. So being able to act to change the way the environment works uh, based on how people are, uh, are interacting or collaborating, what would actually make them more effective, and do that in a semi-autonomous way to really get the right stuff to happen, whether that's the elevator letting people off on a different floor because you're probably going to have a good conversation there, whether that's <laughs> the coffee machine moving around of its own accord so you get the right conversations to happen. Um, of course, to things that they even do today around you know, HVAC systems changing heating um, or lighting to try to subtly change behavior. I think that, that's a little bit farther out. Technologically, we can do that today, but it'll just take a little bit longer for that to become mainstream, but that's certainly really exciting. It's, it'll be like working in um, Hogwarts, if you've, if you've seen Harry Potter. I think that's, that's the future workplaces will look, will at least feel more like that. It'll probably look close to what we have today, but it'll feel like this much more natural uh, environment.
0: Sounds like a world of new capabilities, but I'm sure some folks might have a few drawbacks or worries in mind. So what privacy issues do you think are on the horizon in regard to tracking employee data?
1: There are obviously a a ton of issues with collecting, analyzing, and then feeding back this kind of data. Um, One of the big issues is that particularly in the U.S., we don't have any regulation or legislation around what can and can't be done with workplace data. The way we deal with this today is... We don't provide individual metrics spec companies, so you can't see what is hand doing on Tuesday, right? There's a really good business case for that. We can all see how that could be abused. Um, on top of that, uh, our data is, is anonymized even when it comes to us. We don't see names or anything like that. It's, cause, again, I don't care which person this is. We need to see things at an aggregate level, who's on which team, those sort of things. On top of that, when we deploy sensors, we deploy on an opt-in basis. We give people consent forms, same as we did, Back when we were doing our PhDs at MIT, um, showing people what database tables that we collect, and legal contract between us and our users saying we will not share individual data with your company, you're the only one that gets to see it. Um, we don't record what you say, we don't count how many times you go to the bathroom, and, and legally guaranteeing this. And I think these are are common sense things which today go above and beyond EU privacy standards in terms of how we deal with data. Um, but I do think that that needs to be encoded um, into law, um, into regulation in the U.S. as well, if we're really going to get widespread adoption of this technology. Um, the way I've thought about it is, if you're familiar with uh, HIPAA, um, which governs how your medical data can be shared, um, I think we need an equivalent regulation for the workplace. What that would do, first of all, for individuals, was provide them uh, default legal protections uh, for what can and can't be done with their data. On top of that, even you know, me coming from a vendor side, makes it a lot easier for me. If we can say we're compliant with this HIPAA for work thing, then people know what standard we're held to. They understand, you know, for instance, for us in the EU today, it's actually much easier for us to roll out the technology because people know what the protections are. They understand that if we violate those, they can take us to court as well they should. Um, And I think that if the U.S. hopes to really maintain our technological edge, we are going to have to proactively legislate this uh, because if we don't, Um, Someone's going to screw up, and then all the good things this technology can do from reducing overwork, uh, reducing workplace suicides, from obviously improving performance, increasing retention, those sort of things that we've been able to do um, over the years, uh, those will be lost. And I think that any organization that's thinking of rolling out any sort of people analytics technology really needs to have this very transparent and measured approach with how they roll it out Uh, and needs to think long term about what's really the right way to do things. Um, And I think that's, uh, that's how we deal with it, but it's gonna grow in importance over time.
0: All right, and we'll let that point take us to the end of today's episode. So thanks so much for spending some time with us, Ben.
1: Really enjoyed the discussion.
0: And of course, we appreciate all of our listeners for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast if you enjoyed your time with us. You can find HCI on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and on the YouTube channel, HCI Talent. Once more, if you'd like to hear more from Ben and join us in sunny South Florida for three days of workforce planning and people analytics excellence and expertise, register for our upcoming event. You can do so by clicking enroll at the top of HCI's homepage, hci.org, then clicking the orange button marked View Conference Schedule. You'll find workforce planning and people analytics right there at the top of the page. For Nine to Thrive HR and all of us here at HCI, thank you for listening.